All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So there has been a school shooting at the Covenant School, which is a elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, typically speaking, we don't come out on this podcast and immediately talk about an event, especially as details are still coming out. However, we do think there's been enough in the press right now to where we can actually talk about this and hopefully talk about it effectively. The bottom line is that there are a lot of issues to discuss with this with respect to why it happened, what the motivation was, um, as well as what do we do about issues like this within the United States. We're going to be discussing all of that and more on this episode of Making the Argument. Last Thursday, I mentioned that we would have a special guest on today's episode, but we've decided to hold that until this coming Thursday due to the shooting that just took place in Nashville, what we're discussing today. If you have thoughts on this topic that you would like to share, please visit the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. Okay, let's uh, let's jump into this. First things first, let's talk about the facts about what we know as far as what happened. So uh, essentially... Um, a, a shooter went into the Covenant Christian School, which, again, is an elementary school in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, apparently with two AR-style weapons and one pistol and proceeded to open fire on students that she came across. Um, police responded, uh, confronted the shooter, and within about 15 minutes, uh, the, the incident had concluded. Um in that time, she had killed three students and three faculty members, uh, to include the, the head of the school. Three of the children that were killed were nine years old. Um, the head of the school was Catherine Coates. Um, it, from, from what we can tell, the police responded uh, fairly quickly and, and efficiently and immediately engaged with the shooter as soon as they came into contact with her. The other thing that, that came out was obviously um, that she's transgender. And this sparked a lot of controversy right off the bat, initially by news outlets who apparently were upset with the initial with reports for misgendering uh, the shooter. She was a biological female that now identified as a male. Um, and from what they can tell based off of writings that they found within her car that they're still analyzing at this point, uh, this might not have been the only target. Um, the police chief has apparently said that a sense of resentment might have played a role in a 28-year-old's deadly attack on the private Christian school they once attended. From what we can tell, uh, it looks like she may have attended the school from first to fourth grade um, before she left. But again, she came back at 28 years old in order to carry out this attack. So that's, that's the facts of the case. Um, these are things that, to my knowledge, nobody is disputing um, about what happened. Um, there, there's one more thing. There was a manifesto. 
Yeah, that's I, I said that writings in the car. They're still trying to. They they haven't fully in come out. And, they haven't fully come out and published that or, or told us what exactly was said. That's why you're getting some of these these terms like you know you know a sense of resentment might have been part of the motivation uh, for this person to to shoot up the school and to to kill these kids and administrators and teachers. Um, so, so those are the facts of the case. Now we're gonna now we're gonna talk about a, a, a how the media few different things how how the media address this how certain politicians ha have addressed this and the other thing that we're gonna get to at the end here is what can and should be done in order to try to protect our schools because there, there's a lot of solutions being offered there always is when this happens um, the reason why I usually don't speak about them right away is again because I I. I despise the fact that so many people jump out and immediately start either assigning blame or declaring that if only we had this piece of legislation, that would solve this or that would have, these kids would have been alive today if you had done that. I see so much of that in the work that I do as the chairman of the subcommittee that handles all of the gun legislation in the Virginia House of Delegates. There's not a single piece of gun legislation in Virginia that doesn't come through the subcommittee I chair. And so I hear just about every argument you possibly could on every side of these gun bills when they come before me. And that's why I find it frustrating that the reactions that sometimes come out on Twitter, which shouldn't surprise anybody. Twitter's an easy place to pontificate about things that you may or may not quite understand. But I was pretty shocked. And we're going to go over some of the... Uh, Actually, you know what? I, I shouldn't even say that. I don't think I'm even shocked anymore. I was going to say, it's I, don't a think, low I don't think bar. I'm even shocked anymore. It's a really low bar. Twitter, it, I mean, is is probably up there with like Reddit in terms of the lowest bars in the internet. And, and somehow they keep surpassing it. And by they, we mean like mainstream media outlets, but not just them. Yeah. There's, um, in, in today's episode, we've got some responses from actually quite a, quite a few people. And one of the things that I'm interested in getting like drilling into in this episode is why did this happen? Well, let, let's also, let's look at this. I want, I want to give Lydia a, a shout out um, on her Twitter, Sour Patch Lids, because she captured the screenshot and we'll see if the guy actually takes it down. But Benjamin Ryan um, tweeted out, <clears throat> NBC has ID'd the Nashville school shooter as Audrey Hale, 28, who identifies as transgender and had no previous criminal record. Nashville is home to the Daily Wire, a hub of anti-trans activity by Matt Walsh, blog Ben Shapiro, and Michael Knowles. So right off the bat, that commentary gives a, a little bit of a an, an indication how some people are going to push this. And and you you think about this for you you think about this just for a moment. Right. Obviously, there, there's parents and there's a community grieving over their, their children who, who certainly bear no responsibility for someone coming in and murdering them. And, and the hot take by Benjamin Ryan here is that, well, Nashville is the home of the Daily Wire hub of anti-trans activity. Right. Right. As he's announced that the shooter was identified as transgender. So it, it, it gives off a very much they had it come and feel. Yeah on the way he talks about this. And no, I don't think it's too strong to suggest that that's what he was. That's what he was insinuating. Um, is that either, you know, Nick, we, we these have kids have it coming or the, and, and I won't even go so far to say that I won't suggest that he was saying the kids have it coming. I think what he's suggesting is, is that because you know, the daily wire, Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro or Michael Knowles or, or others ha have questioned some of the motivations, some of the language, some of the rhetoric that has come from, certain elements within the trans community that therefore, of course, something like this was going to happen. That it's essentially the, the fault of anybody that would challenge certain positions of the trans community that, that, that led to this. That seems to be what he's insinuating to me. And, and I, I, I agree. And the reason why is because 
he's not the only one that basically said the quiet part out loud. So let's look at some of the others. Here's here's a a tweet from uh, Newsweek. Um, Get this. This this was literally just a few hours after the shooting um, when they published this. Drag shows and gender-affirming care for minors were banned in Tennessee this month while assault weapons remain legal. And then their headline title, Tennessee Republicans ban on drag shows criticized after mass shooting. Imagine making that your, your analysis of this. I mean, and because let's let's look real quick. Go, go up. I want to see. I want to see. Look this at how many replies this guy. Oh yeah, get a thirty six hundred replies. One point four million views. Four hundred seventy six live. Thirty six hundred comments. For those of you who don't know, that's what we call a ratio. But I, I want to go up a little bit taller. I want to see what the Newsweek. So what Newsweek chose to put on top of this article: drag shows and gender affirming care for minors were banned in Tennessee this month. Think about this for a second. Drag shows. Now again, what is a drag show? A drag show is not just a man dressing as a woman. Typically, drag shows have been burlesque shows. There's always been a heavily sexual connotation to a drag show. And gender-affirming care for minors. Now, keep in mind, when they say gender-affirming care, they don't mean going to a child psychologist and talking about your problems. What they actually banned in Tennessee were things like surgical procedures on minors, things like double mastectomies. What they actually banned were things like Loading kids up with puberty blockers at an age that it, that is going to have lifelong effects. I always love it when they say, oh, you can do this and then turn it off and there's no permanent effects. How can you possibly know that when we really don't have long-term studies to determine that? Not to mention the fact that you're honestly telling me that if you interrupt a child's natural biological development, that that's not going to have any long-term effects simply because you stopped doing the, no long-term effect. I don't buy that. But that's what, keep in mind, that is what was banned. There was nothing in there that said that a a child couldn't go to a child psychologist and talk to them. But no, this is the, and they call it euphemism. And they call it gender affirming care. Let's make something very, very clear here. Their gender corresponds with their biological sex. It is not gender affirming care, it's dysphoria affirming care. Right? It's a child that has a deep psychological conviction or for whatever other reason has determined that they no longer want to identify along with their biological sex. And instead of helping work through that, because usually it takes place around uh, puberty. And if you actually want to learn more about this, there was a great interview between um, uh, Chloe, who's one of the most uh, probably well-known young women who's who's gone through the G transitioning process. There was an interview with Jordan Peterson and Jordan Peterson actually walked through the process of what happens to a lot of girls when they're going through puberty and how essentially their entire world has kind of been, you know, uh, turned upside down because they used to be able to, you know, play with the boys and go out and be able to compete because the strength differential when they were very young really wasn't all that significant. And then all of a sudden the dynamics, the biological dynamics change significantly during puberty and, and everyone experiences, you know, difficulties or uncertainties or frustration going through puberty. But he was talking about how it can be especially difficult for girls and, and yet now they're being told that, oh, well, if you're, if you're having a difficult time going through this, here's some drugs, here's some surgery. So I just want to make sure that we understand that when Newsweek throws out this term gender-affirming care, that it's not gender-affirming care, it's dysphoria-affirming care, and it's usually very, very expensive and, and, and many times life-altering. So that's what Tennessee said. You can't do that to minors. You know how if you're at the school and you can't give a kid an aspirin without parents' permission? You know how if you're you're under 18 and you can't get a tattoo? You you, You also can't get a double mastectomy 
Yeah. Right. So let, let's just let's just make sure that we understand what we're actually talking about here instead of the way that Newsweek has decided to to try to that's you know, not market even, it. That that's not even like my biggest issue with this. It, it, it's more of this idea that like Tennessee had it coming. This, yeah. The, the, going going back back to the the previous narrative, and I mean. This this one reply. By the way, this guy got more likes than the original tweet. Yeah. Um. The, the, uh, this one reply was, "Did you guys miss that press conference about the shooter? Just wait until you get a hold of the manifesto. You guys will memory hold this like you did the murderous Waukesha SUV. That was um about like what a year ago. Yeah. And a little over. Um. I I, I like like we'll get into this in today's episode that like. How many times has has whenever something happens, it's almost like the media is is wishing that the perpetrator fits a certain mold ideologically yeah. or in terms of their own identity, usually race or gender. They're, they're always hoping for it to be some straight white male conservative. Well, and, and they really, they desperately want it to fit their narrative. And when it doesn't, then the, the type of report, the reporting changes significantly. Yes. And speaking of reporting changing significantly, here's another tweet from USA Today. This is just incredible. This is just incredible. Police on Monday afternoon said that the shooter was a transgender man. Officials had initially misidentified the gender of the shooter. 5,138 replies, 420 likes. That's another ratio for you. What I love is this reply from uh, the redhead libertarian who who actually, Josie. Her, her reply got more likes than USA Today got in replies, yeah. which is actually kind of funny. She got over 6,000 replies. This, she, she, she said, child murderers do not get their preferred pronouns recognized. I, it's, it's kind of incredible that you have something like this happen. And USA Today's response is transgender uh, man shoots up school, transgender's most affected. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, they're not the only one that did this. The New York Times also put out a tweet. I mean, it's just everywhere, yeah. everywhere. It's and you know, like you said at the beginning of this show, Nick, um, we're not really surprised anymore that these are the type of responses that we get. We're just used to it. Like like 10, 20 years ago, if a major news outlet like the New York Times had said something like there was confusion later on Monday about the gender identity of the assailant in the Nashville shooting, officials had used she and her to refer to the suspect who, according to a social media post in a LinkedIn profile, appeared to identify as a man in recent months. Are you out of your mind? Here's a response from a, an account called Leftism for You. I actually follow this account. Um, transgender woman murders three uh, or, or murders three eight to nine year olds and three adults. The New York Times. The shooter was misgendered. You guys are vile. Um, again, massive ratio for the New York Times. Like this is the response from these outlets. It's either to complain about misgendering or in the case of Newsweek, it's to insinuate that somehow Tennessee Republicans and conservatives are at fault because they ban drag shows and quote unquote gender affirming care. And as Nick pointed out, it's really gender dysphoria affirming, but um, uh, affirming care. But what I find so fascinating about this in a, in a really sad, pathetic type of way is how when something like this happens, it's either Right-wing conservatives are responsible for it because they didn't pass gun control. That's usually whenever you have an instance like this, we'll take the Sandy Hook shooting, for example. What was the response from that? Oh, well, conservative Republicans are at fault because they don't let us take away gun rights. That's the response we normally get when something like this happens. Same thing happened with Uvalde last year, right? Mm -hmm. And yet when the shooter is somebody that is from the left, and we're going to get into this in today's episode. Which, which by the way, is... 
<clears throat> let's just say a lot more common than the left would like to point out. The left would like to to categorize. And here's what's amazing: when somebody comes out, okay, go ahead. When 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 the shooter is is somebody that is on the left. Somehow it's still the right's fault, yeah. right? It's the right's fault when it's when it's an, a, a normal apolitical deranged lunatic that that goes and shoots somebody. And lo and behold, it's also the right's fault when it's somebody on the left that does the same thing too, right? Yeah. Like, like I, I mean, you, well, you, not, not only that, and then they assign to the right people that are not right. Like if you're a, if you're a white supremacist. That's not right wing, right? You're not a conservative Republican because you're a white. So they like to, they like to market it that way, but I don't have anything in common with a white supremacist. I can't stand them. I think that, I think that is a horrible, evil, sinful ideology. It bears no resemblance to what I actually believe politically, but they want to categorize that as so. And, and, and here's the spectrum. If we look at several of the various mass shootings that have happened in the United States, we do have people that have come directly out and said they were motivated by things that were said by Elizabeth Warren, by AOC, by Barack Obama, by Bernie Sanders. Now, you know what I say every time they do that? It's still their fault. It's not AOC's fault. It's not Elizabeth Warren's fault. It's not Brock. If somebody is motivated by a statement, right, that is anything other than, hey, you should go out and, and hurt other people, right? That is still your misinterpretation of the statement. I don't blame somebody else because you've assigned your motivations to their political ideology. But that's at least a straight line, with someone saying, yeah, I believe what this person is telling me. So I did this, right? It is not a straight line for somebody to say, I don't like people of a particular color. So I'm going to murder them. Oh, therefore Republicans are the, but that doesn't make any sense. There's no line there. There's no connection there. And yet that's how it's treated. And the reason why I bring this up is, and again, there's going to be people that think, you know, this is cold. Why are you talking about political ideology at a time like this? Because it's the first thing that always gets brought up. It's the first thing that always gets brought up. And the bottom line is that if people are not willing to stand up and say, okay, look, if we really want to understand the motivation for why these things are happening, the mechanics of it, in order to properly stop it, then let's do that. But if the left is always going to come up with, it's the right's fault because we didn't ban guns. It's the right's fault because of hateful rhetoric. And then bury the story on page 27 when not only is it not right-wing rhetoric, but it is blatant left-wing rhetoric. And we're well, going to get into that in this then we have to. We are going to call that out because what it, tells, what it tells me is that you're not as concerned about stopping this as you claim to be because if you were, you would do a little bit more careful analysis on why people are telling you they're doing it. So Speaking let's, of that, let's look at this. You said something that was... Really important, um, Nick, when, when you said um, that the rhetoric is is a major contributing factor to what's happening, because I have a theory, and I know that I'm not the only one that has this theory of why this this took place, and I do think that it is because of rhetoric that we're seeing the left use. Um, for example, here's a response from the Trans Resistance Network. They ended up locking their Twitter account, by the way, um, because they were they were getting basically just just torn to pieces because of this press release that they put out. This is an incredible, incredible press release. I, I like like. Well, can we can we look first? Do we, I don't know if we have the image of the what was the the Trans Day of Vengeance. Oh, oh, because the, we, I, I think we need to understand like, why are, why are we pulling up the trans resistant network statement on this? 
it's because I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the same organization that was pushing the Trans Day of Vengeance. Well, I mean, there there's a million trans organizations out there, but um, I so so I don't necessarily know if they. I, I believe that that they were the um, trans radical activist network that was the one pushing the Trans Day of Resistance. Okay, but, but um, I mean, we Hamilton. If you want, we can um, pull up before I read this press release. Um, we can pull up the um, the story from the Daily Wire talking about that. If anything, we could just pull up the headline to show um, show people. Um, so here's the the infographic. This is supposed to be held on, held on April 1st. We'll see if that actually happens. Yeah, so I want to make sure I get this correct. I don't want to assign something to them that they didn't do. But this was this is what I'm talking about. It was the Trans Day of Vengeance. Stop trans genocide. April 1st, 11 a.m. Assemble at SCOTUS. Wear a mask. Bring a buddy. That that was what was put out. And I think it was scheduled for well April 1st. Yeah. So it was yeah coming up in a couple uh, days. A, a few days after the shooting. Now actually, I'm kind of glad that we brought this up because there's one word in this entire infographic. Um, those those of you who are listening to us on audio, we have the infographic up. There's one word that Nick read off that's in this infographic that I think really gets to the heart of um, what's happening, and that's the word genocide. Yeah. And you're going to see over the course of this episode that word pop up again and again and again. Um, now, let's go back to the press release that the uh, Trans Resistance Network put out. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I'm just going to read the parts. That, I mean, the entire thing is just stunning in the worst way possible. Here's what they put out. They said the Trans Resistance Network has been notified that the shooter involved in today's church shooting, uh, um, uh, church school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, was a person identifying as transgender, known in online profiles as Aiden or Aubrey Hale. I love how they put the pronouns in there again. He, him. Um, while it's not our policy to engage publicly with news media, we believe this moment calls for a thoughtful response. Thoughtful response. You're going to find out just how thoughtful this is. We point out that today's incident in Nashville, Tennessee, is not one tragedy, but two. The first tragedy today of this entire press release of something like a dozen paragraphs, what you're going to find out is the thing that I'm about to read right now is the only time in this entire press release where they say anything about the victims. The only time. One line. And they say, sorry, one paragraph. And they say, the first tragedy today is the loss of the life of three children and adults. We extend our deepest sympathies and heartfelt prayers to those families dealing with the loss of loved ones. Apparently, thoughts and prayers do apply when the left says it. And they only use it in one paragraph. And then they go on to say, there's nothing we can offer that will comfort the hurt or ease the sorrow. We mourn with you. And then here's what they go on to say for literally the entire rest of the thing. The second and more complex tragedy is that of Aiden or Aubrey Hale, who felt that he had no other effective ways to be seen than to lash out by taking the lives of others and by consequence himself. We do not claim to know the individual or have access to their inner thoughts and feelings. We do know that the life of uh, for transgender people is very difficult and made more difficult in the preceding months by a virtual uh, virtual avalanche of anti-trans legislation and public callouts by right-wing media personalities and political figures for nothing less than the genocidal eradication of trans people from society. There's that word again that I said, yeah. genocide, genocidal eradication. This is a phrase that the, that the left particular, uh, particularly left-wing activists within uh, um, the trans community uses relentlessly in online circles. You go anywhere on the internet, Reddit, Twitter, anywhere, and you see this phrase brought up over and over and over and over again. The idea that they're trying to erase trans people. They're trying to literally genocide trans people. And by they, they mean you, the audience that's listening to this show right now, which is just 
ridiculous. The, the, the hyperbolic rhetoric. And, and you know how it's ridiculous? Think of, here's a, think, here's a thought process for you. You're going on a hike on a mountain. Let's say Old Rock here in Virginia. Very, scenic mountain that a lot of people like hiking. You're going on a hike. There's many people that are around you that are hiking as well. Today you're hiking and you see somebody ahead of you that's also hiking and they, they fall down a cliff and you walk up to them and they see that they're, they're dangling off the ledge of the mountain. And unless you do something to help them, they could fall to their deaths. And you see that they're also trans who would not pull them off the ledge and save their life. Nobody in their right mind would not do that. And yet we're told relentlessly that half of America if you're on the right or center right, apparently you want to erase and eradicate and genocide trans people. That It's ridiculous. No, what we want to do is we want to stop perpetuating mental illness in this country through the mechanisms of government. That's what they've done in Tennessee, right? It was state-funded universities like Vanderbilt that were doing these surgeries for children and conservatives the response from conservatives is you know what we don't want taxpayer funds to be perpetuating mental illnesses that are going to to push people down a path that has a 41 percent suicide rate because we don't think it's good for them that is not genocide that is trying to save people and now you might disagree and fair enough, you might you might vehemently disagree. You might be like the lieutenant governor of Minnesota who wore a shirt that, that had a knife in front of it talking about trans rights, also perpetuating this narrative. But you know what? That's your prerogative to disagree. But for you to then take a step further and say you want to kill people because you want to ban these surgeries, no wonder people are going to end up reacting right. like this. Well, I, I saw you saw this too in this um, the interview that or. It, it was a committee hearing, Senate committee hearing with Josh Hawley, and she he was questioning the whole concept of you know can can men get pregnant and whatnot, or can men have, and and the person who was a college professor kept saying you know you know trans men can yes trans men, and then she started saying you know you do realize that all of the questions you're asking are incredibly transphobic, like you're denying that trans people exist. I, I want to make and and then they also talked about it was another I think it was um, I think it was malice that said. Um, you know, he wanted to eradicate transgenderism. I think it was him that said that. And so the, the, every time that this was said, the rhetoric is important because the rhetoric does help justify certain responses. So when they say things like, um, Oh, they said they want to eradicate trans people. Or when they say things like you're, you're denying the existence of uh, trans people. First of all, let's, let's understand something. Malice didn't say he wanted to eradicate trans people. That that would be that would be a horrible statement, um, and and when Holly asked a question about this and 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 she says you're denying the existence of trans people, keep in mind what's going on here. If you make a claim about yourself, and I disagree with that claim, I'm not denying your existence. I'm not denying your humanity. I might be denying the way that you identify yourself. But that's not the same thing. But if you're going to treat it as if it is the same thing, well, then my, my follow-up question might be like, okay, if this is such a core component of your identity, can you please tell me what you're identifying as? And this is where we get into this all the time. Why am I identifying as a woman? Okay, what's a woman? Well, it's, it's, it's what I am. Okay, well, what are you identifying as? Well, as a woman. Now, a lot of people will look at this and say, well, that's just a, that's just a circular argument. And that, that's correct. But there's another problem here. This is so absurd because when you identify as something, what you're doing is you're associating yourself with unique and objective characteristics, features, and attributes, 
which distinguishes the thing you're identifying as from all the things you're not identifying as. But if you're going to draw that down to, well, no, no, if I, I think it, it is, well, then now what you're saying is, is that there is no objective definition for a woman. It, it's, it is a, it is an objectively meaningless statement. If, if all it is, is, that seems like a pretty high price to pay. So the reason why, the reason why I go down this little side trail is when we talk about this is because whenever you bring up a perfectly logically consistent argument that, well, wait a second, the, the whole purpose of saying woman is to distinguish a woman from everything that is not a woman. What I'm asking for is the objective criteria that makes it, that differentiates it. Well, no, it's, it's just if you identify as a woman. Okay. Not only have you used the word woman, which suggests that there's some sort of criteria that would make something not a woman, you've now used the word identify. Well, gosh, what is identification? It is once again using a series of unique features, characteristics, attributes in order to distinguish between one thing and another thing. But the moment you bring up these points, you are treated as if you want to do physical harm to somebody that identifies as a trans person. No, I may disagree with how you're representing yourself. That doesn't mean I don't think you're a human being. It doesn't mean I don't think you're creating the image of God and entitled to certain to basic human rights and protections. But this is the point. Like it, it's one of those things where we've been told you don't get an option. You either agree with my representation of reality or you're committing an act of violence and aggression against me. And if someone is committing an act of aggression against you, what does it entitle you to do? It entitles you to defend yourself. Can you use violence to defend yourself? Absolutely. So the rhetoric has been repeatedly set up over the last several years to create this dynamic to where if you don't agree with their position, not their humanity, not basic human rights, if you don't agree with their representation of reality, then you're an aggressor committing an act of violence. And if they've got to respond in kind, well, that's just them defending themselves. Christian, you brought up another. Yeah. I, it, 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 getting me, back to let the. Let me ask a quick question. Go ahead. Nick, do you think that it is, the more, it is the majority of the left that holds this position, or is there a sector of the left which is very, very loud on this topic? Okay. So once upon a time, I would have said this is just kind of a really, really loud minority within. within I, I don't believe that anymore. Now, I do think there's some people, and, and look, I will give credit where it's credit to do. Like, uh, I think it was Sink from Young Turks even though I, I think he's a little bit disingenuous and intellectually dishonest with some of his own previous statements, he's actually got up before and said, look, you can't, you can't say that everything I disagree with is an act of violence. So you have to differentiate between yeah. words and violence. So oh, good. Thank you. Sink. You're, you're wanting to have, you're making an honest distinction between two things. Yeah. Now, are there such a thing as words, which can be attributed? Yes. If, if I, if, if someone comes up and they tell everyone to, you know, they, they, they direct them to go out and hurt other people, to murder them, to steal from them, to do all these other things. If they direct them to do that, are, are you, are you inciting violence at that point? Absolutely. Which is why even within free speech laws within the United States, we make a distinction between free speech, which may be mean, which may be incorrect versus that, which is directly being utilized in order to incite violence. We make a legal distinction between those two things. But if you blur that line, and you say that anything that causes me mental anguish or stress because it disagrees with how I've decided to interpret reality is therefore an act of violence, then ladies and gentlemen, not, everything's on the table. So why is why has violence not been on the table for prior issues that the left may have been 
pushing for. Because they never would have gotten away with it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 so years ago. So what's different about today? Oh, what's different today is that you've had an education system through through the university, but also now because, look, the vast majority of your teachers are going through a college education in right. order to go and become teachers. And so some of these concepts and ideas are working their way in through the public school system and then through in the university system. Now, there's a lot of people that will look at their local public school in rural Tennessee and be like, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm not claiming that every teacher is going in there and pushing this particular agenda. Right. But if you're telling me that it isn't far more widespread than it has ever been before, I'm going to tell you your nuts are not paying attention. Because it clearly is. And, and when you start pushing this narrative that, that is, again, fueled by deconstructionism, postmodernism, critical theory, where all of a sudden all of society is broken down into either class structure, race structure, gender structure, identity structure, right. and there's oppressor and oppressed. Right. And, and even if you're not actively engaging in oppressing someone, you kind of are because you're the beneficiary of oppressive systems. Well, this has been repeated ad nauseum within not only within pop culture, but within our school system. And at some point you're going to come to a logical conclusion that if I'm oppressed and you're the oppressor and I have to use violence to get you to, to understand what's going on, not to mention the fact throughout the entire summer of love, I watched as people burned things down, looted, stole, beat people, resisted arrest. Were they all called out for engaging in horrible acts of violence? No, it no. was stunning and brave. They, they were stunning and brave. They were listed up as people that had just had enough, and now they were doing something about it. And if you don't like it, maybe you should have listened before because now violence is necessary. You cannot tell me that that narrative has not been front and center for years now. And so like anything else, if you're asking why now is this something – because it takes a while for people yeah. to embrace these ideas, adopt them, and then more and more when people when they see other people engaging in them, and then not only are they not punished for it, they're they're actually lauded as heroes. Yeah. Well, then you've normalized the behavior. In fact, you've incentivized and celebrated the behavior. There's a leading into your post here that we're gonna um, mm -hmm. this Reddit post that we're gonna read. I think it's important for conservatives to understand that we have a way of like living within our own bubble of conservatism and maybe Christianity. And we oftentimes don't consider that there are other spaces on the internet that we have never seen that are incredibly active mm -hmm. and have a good bit of influence like we're going to see right here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I spend quite a lot of time scrolling through other places on the internet Yeah. on, on Reddit in particular and Twitter in particular. Reddit's and an seeing, interesting platform. It's an interesting platform, but um, same, same thing with YouTube, but um, this one commenter who is actually a detransitioner, um, I, I think really encapsulates why you're seeing this happen now, whereas you didn't see it five years ago. Right. Um, it, it, I'm going to read this entire thing and I'd love to get you, your guys's reaction because I don't think either of you have, have seen this yet. And it's nope. everything here is incredible. Um, this is from a person called takes hold. That's their username on Reddit. And they're posting on a transgender, um, uh, Reddit thread r slash honest transgender, by the way, this ended up being deleted by the mods of that thread really? shortly after it was posted. So now, we've got now, a screenshot. What's the of nature it. of this subreddit? Is oh, it it's, it's just one of a, it, yeah, it's just one of a million. There, there's, there's many pro trans subreddits out there okay. and they're, they're all kind of like talking about different things, but they're all run by the same type of people. They're all like left wing activists, basically. 
that all kind of share the same ideology and anything that questions this stuff. But that, that's why there's a Reddit thread for detransitioners. Yeah. Um, because uh, they're not allowed to operate within, you know, trans spaces on the internet disavow those people. And basically you want to talk about treating them like denying their existence. Yeah. Detransitioners yeah. like Chloe, they don't exist in the eyes of, of some of these people that's on the left. That's a good point. That's a right. Good because point. they, they, they work against this narrative. They don't even want to recognize their existence. So, yeah, this got deleted almost immediately. But here's what this person had to say. Trans posters and trans forums and trans accounts on Twitter regularly promote violence against, quote, Nazis and TERFs and fascists. They mean it. They want violence. They talk about punching, shooting, stabbing, beating with baseball bats, and they put images of rifles on trans flags. When you look at the targets of the rhetoric, most of the targets aren't actually Nazis, TERFs, or fascists. They're dissident voices, conservative Christians and feminists, and everyday people who don't hold the fringe beliefs about sex that many trans people hold. Last week, I saw a video of a 72-year-old butch woman being punched full-forced, closed fist by a bearded trans rights protester in New Zealand. I saw trans people commenting to minimize or justify it. I see a lot of that. We've been seeing it for years. So has everyone else on social media. The community tells trans youth that they're under attack, under threat of genocide, tells them death before detransition. The community says trans kids are being killed by legislation. Two trans people have now taken guns into schools and literally killed children as revenge. The murderous and suicidal rhetoric, the violence against women and children should have stopped years ago. Another good time for it to discontinue would be now. I've gotten into the trans subs to see that almost every reaction to the murder of young children is self-concern. I'm the victim here. I'm in more danger than ever before. This is genocide against us. Every time this murder's identity and motives are mentioned, we are being killed. There's a problem. You can't fix it alone. It's horrific. It's immense and intense. And it's overwhelming. There should be a consensus that things need to change. I don't know what it would take. Maybe it's too late. And this is what the trans movement has become. And this is how it ends. I mean, I, <laughs> what more is to say? I, I, this again with this. Here, here's the part that's necessary to, to say, and it shouldn't be, but it is. So I, I don't think anybody is confused with respect to where my position is on, on the whole concept of transgender. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it is possible. I, I think that your biology determines your sex. Gender is nothing more than a word that essentially attributes certain attributes to women and men, girls and boys. That's all it is. You, you can have more feminine men. You can have more masculine women, but that's exactly what it is. It's a more masculine woman. It's a more effeminate boy. It's not, it's not that they've switched their biological sex. That can't happen. It isn't possible. That is not me denying the existence of a trans person. It is not me wishing harm on a trans person. Nothing can be further from the truth. I desperately want anybody that is dealing with a situation in which they have this deep psychological conviction that doesn't correspond with reality. I want them to get well. Be well. I want them to, I want them to be in a position where the world around them and their own biology doesn't confuse or upset or make them miserable. That's what I want for them. But I'm not going to pretend 
that if they do a bunch of surgeries or take a bunch of drugs, that that's going to solve the underlying problem here, which is a basic fundamental confusion about reality. So when, when we talk about all of this, am, am I blaming everyone in the transgender community? No. But what we are trying to do is get to the bottom of why is it that there seems to be this, this use of rhetoric? And it's not, by the way, let's make something very clear. It's not just for transgenderism. It's been for the LGBT community. It's been based off of race. It's been based off of sex. This constant use of rhetoric of oppressor and oppressed. That's what this really comes down to. This, the reason why we spend so much time talking about critical theory is because we're trying to recognize the origin of these concepts and how they manifest themselves in reality. Because once you've told an entire generation of people, oppressed, oppressor, if you say this, that's an act of, that's an act of violence and oppression, and you have to defend yourself. If you don't defend yourself, you're complicit in the genocide that's taking place against you. Eradication. Right? And so, so when, somebody, when somebody decides that they're going to engage in a heinous act of evil, this is, I, actually, I actually wrote a paper on this in college. When you've convinced someone that there is essentially no objective moral law, which is to say no objective moral law, no objective moral law giver, it's all about your self-identification, it's all about your self-actualization, it's all about your internal moral code and your perspective on the truth, your narrative, your lived experience, right? When it's all about that, there's a lot of people that will push that sort of narrative and say, this is because we want people to be free from all these entrapments and all these people that are preventing them from being what they want. But other people interpret it as... Well, the way I'm going to make sure that people understand my pain is by causing them pain. And then when they go out and they find the most vulnerable target possible in order to make sure that as many people are as incensed as possible, we look back at that like, how could this happen? What do you mean how could this happen? You, you think this was just a matter of someone picking up a gun? There's hundreds of millions of guns in the United States that nobody is using right now to hurt anybody. And there has been for decades in the United States. This is not a new phenomenon. If you really want to start to understand why this is happening, you can't just look at the physical mechanics of what took place. We have a person, we have a school, we have children, we have guns, we have bullets. You can't just look at that. You have to look at why. Why are they doing it? And why has it become more common over the last couple of decades? It's not because there's more guns. It's because people somewhere along the line have convinced themselves that this is an appropriate way to make other people feel their pain. And if we're not going to start to address that for what it is and recognize that there isn't some government law we can pass or rule that we can pass that all of a sudden makes that underlying motivation go away, we can certainly look at the things that contribute to it we can certainly look at the things that potentially motivate it or incentivize it or celebrate it. I mean, I, I, I'm coming to the conclusion that like the constant deranged hyperbolic claims of genocide is basically an open invitation for violence yeah. and that it's only going to continue to get worse. I've even got an, another example, just some random account. Another, like, 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 like to show you that this stuff happens all mm -hmm. the time. And I'm not going to show you 10,000 different tweets because that would take way too much time. So I just pulled up one random one on the internet and it's the same thing. This person is quote tweeting an account that actually has a huge following on Twitter and they're a massive pro trans account. And then this person's like, F this oppressed minorities strike back. It gets back to exactly what Nick was just saying. And if you don't want it to happen, stop oppressing them. 
people with nothing left to lose lose will sometimes uh, um, instead become martyrs. See all of history. I won't pretend like this wasn't caused by the recent legislation in Tennessee. Again, saying the quiet part out loud right yeah. there. And if you scroll down, Hamilton, you can see the, um, uh, the, the, the reply to this as well. Striking back isn't killing three nine-year-old students. Agree, it shouldn't be. But I'm just trying to explain what happened here and what could be done to prevent it. And what? So, so think <laughs> think about that statement real quick. I'm just trying to explain what happened. So, what happened? Somebody murdered somebody because you know, hey, oppressed minorities were fighting back. And what can be what can be done to prevent it? If you give us what we want, right? If you give us what we want, that that can help prevent this sort of thing from happening. Now, I don't even know if this person meant that. But that is what they tweeted. And, and more and more people are coming to the conclusion that there is, a, there is an ever-increasing sector of the population that honestly believes that any disagreement with their you know, view of reality, with their policy positions, is an act of violence. And if it's an act of violence, then they're allowed to engage in violence against you. And if you don't like it, well, then they're just explaining to you what needs to be done in order to prevent it, which is bow to me and which agree with me politically compliance. It's it, what, what it is. It's based. It's intimidation tactics, like, like good old fashioned intimidation tactics. It is. I will perpetuate actual violence against you until you agree to conform yourself to my political worldview. Mm -hmm. Um, by the way, we've got two more, um, uh, tweets, one from James Lindsay and one from Matt Walsh, who I think really kind of get to the core of this in terms of why is this happening and, and reemphasizing some of the stuff that we've talked about previously in this, in this episode. Here's what, here's what Lindsay has to say. He says, we know the trans cult is a violent cult fueled by critical consciousness. By the way, critical consciousness is his term to describe what we previously on this show called the successor ideology. When we did that episode, it's also wokeism, all these different terms that we come up with. We're all trying to come up with a term to describe yeah. this because the left won't come up with their own term. Um, anyway, he says it's fueled by critical consciousness training in K through 12 education, critical consciousness. And then he puts in parentheses, wokeness is a cult ideology, which may, which makes you believe everything in society is designed to oppress you, even nature itself. Therefore, those who believe in it are encouraged to violate laws and even kill other people as an act of retribution as they believe it is their justice. Now that is some really spicy language from yeah. from Lindsay, who's no stranger to spicy language. But um, quite frankly, he's he's got a bit of a point here, because as Nick was saying previously, when you've deluded yourself repeatedly through certain phrases that have been repeated over and over again in internet circles, echo chambers that these people operate in, right? That that trans rights are human rights and any attack on, on this is denying the existence of transgender people. And we're literally facing genocide and these people want to kill us. Despite the fact that nobody on the right wants to do any of that. What nobody. we want to do is be left alone and not have our children be told that they, that, that they, they should chop off their body parts because they're going through gender dysphoria. That's the extent of what we want to do. And we're being told that that is, is, is tantamount to literal genocide, that it is Holocaust 2.0. Well, when you've deluded yourself into thinking that and that you are facing extermination because the state of Tennessee wants to ban drag shows for minor children, well, then, yeah, why, why won't you resort to violence? Because violence is already being perpetuated against you. Right. If, if, if you have convinced yourself that your very existence is at stake, 
then you will resort to any means necessary to defend yourself. And so you have deluded yourself into committing gross acts of violence against innocent people and children because you have convinced yourself a lie that because states like Tennessee don't want young children to be exposed to sexually explicit drag shows, somehow that's an attack on your very existence as a human being because your existence as a human being is defined by that. It's, it's not defined by anything else. It's defined by your sexuality. It's defined by your gender identity. And so any attempts to push back on that constitutes an attack on your very existence. And an attack on your very existence should be met with violence. And, and, I, and I think, well, and this is the part, too, that people need to understand is that people ask, how can this happen? And, and then, again, the, the response that we have from the left all the time is like, well, if we just banned guns. Okay, California has the strongest like gun legislation in the country. I, I think it's Giffords is gives them like an A. They're one of like three states that gets an A. And, and yet, proportionally, they actually have a lot of mass shootings. Now, what's interesting is that people come back, well, well that's because they got the gun in a different state. Oh, okay, so is the mass shootings even worse than that state? Well, we'll know. Oh, then I guess it must be something more than the access to firearms that's motivating this sort of behavior. So let, let's put aside, I mean, if we're really honest about having a conversation. There's been a lot of conversations about banning guns. Can we please have a conversation about some of the other things that potentially contribute to this or could potentially contribute to this? Because if you really want to know how does somebody engage in one of these behaviors, there's a couple of different explanations. There can be, I mean, when it comes to a mass shooting, nobody's engaging in a mass shooting at a school because they're motivated by greed, for instance, right? They're not trying to get money. They're not holding up a bank and they ended up shooting four people by accident. That's not what happened. Okay. So the, the question is, is what are the, uh, could they be, could they be motivated uh, by revenge against the nine year olds or the eight year old that they shot? Probably not. Yeah, the, the idea that eight or nine year old did anything to them. Okay. So it's, so it's not a revenge motivation, right? This is one of those things where you have to find motive. Whenever you're looking at it, ask any detective when they're looking at a crime, right? You're looking for method, um, means and opportunity or excuse me, um, uh, method, motive and opportunity, Right. So when, when we start looking at the motivation here, what we find is, is that the reason why people engage in an act like this is either because they're, they're so far mentally gone, like truly mentally gone, which by the way, it is not as common as, as people want to make out to be. I know that's the easy answer for all this. Oh, it's just a mental health issue. We better start, we better start remembering that people have a huge capacity for justifying their behavior, provided they can determine it's moral. If they've, if they've settled upon a framework that justifies their action no matter how heinous, because in the end it achieves the greater good, then they will be capable of doing things that will absolutely terrify you. And I don't know how much of human history we have to go through to be able to look at the ample examples that are provided to recognize this is a reality. The same people that were sitting down and listening to some of the, the absolute most you know, incredible musicians and, and, and artists in Germany at the same time were complicit with respect, with respect to rounding up and putting people in concentration camps where they were going to be murdered. How does that happen? This is one of the reasons why Jordan Peterson has spent so much time trying to understand genocide, atrocities, authoritarianism. How do you get otherwise nice people to go home and kiss their kids goodnight to be complicit in the most heinous acts in all of human history? And you generally do it by convincing them that it's actually part of a more necessary, higher moral order 
that is going to achieve some sort of greater good in the future. It's very rare. History is it has very rarely do true monsters pop up in, in, in throughout history who who engage in in vile acts for for you know giggles basically, right? It it it. it what you see over and over again, and Peterson um, uh, talks about this repeatedly, that um, a lot of what the SS did, for example, in in Poland, was conducted by normal people in German society. In fact, the SS had a policy when they were recruiting people of intentionally weeding out members that found some sort of sadistic joy in what they were doing. Because those people were unstable people that wouldn't necessarily follow orders. They would be loose radicals. They're, they're kind of do they're, they're, they're uncontrollable. They're they're just they, they they can end up turning the gun on their own officers and men, right? Mm -hmm. And so the SS went out there and they they found people that were normal people, the mailman, the milkman, police officers, police officers, and they they conditioned them into believing that what you were doing is as you said, serving a higher purpose. Now, does that mean? That the average transgender person is is like a member of the SS? Of course not. Does that mean that they're a Nazi? Of course not. Unlike the left, who repeatedly calls us Nazis and fascists, despite not knowing what either of those two, two terms are, I'm not about to go out there and say that my political opponents are Nazis and fascists. I'm trying. The reason I'm using this example is because I'm trying to explain the psychology of what's at place here, mm -hmm. a, 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 of what's taking place, right? I'm not saying they're the same type of person. I'm saying it's the same psychological process. That's playing out. I want to end with pulling up this um, this tweet from Matt Walsh here, um, because I think that he really kind of gets to the heart of, again, what's going on. And he uses a little bit, again, to, to use the James Lindsay reference, he uses uh, some pretty spicy rhetoric, too. He says, I've been telling you for a long time that left wing trans extremists are violent, dangerous people who have been made to feel absolutely entitled to say and do whatever they want. The deranged claims of genocide are an open invitation to violence. I knew that I got that line from somewhere. I said yeah. that myself earlier. It will only get worse from here. Trans activists believe that those who oppose them should die. I know this because a great many of them have told me this. They have communicated the message to me and my family in many ways. They think their right to affirmation supersedes your right to live. This kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier that when you've deluded yourself so much into thinking that you are facing an existential crisis that anybody that opposes your ideological worldview, yep. and not just an ideological worldview, your policy prescriptions constitutes an act of genocide against you, you will eventually, I'm, the thing that I'm surprised, you will eventually resort to violence. And what I'm surprised about is not that this happened. What I'm surprised about is that it took this long for this to happen. Because messages like this and, and comments like this, phrases like eradication, erasure, genocide, calling your opponents Nazis and fascists, this has been going on within the left and within trans communities on the internet for a very long time. It's just that conservatives haven't seen it because, lo well and behold, they're not going out there searching for this type of stuff. But you can scroll through the internet and find very similar comments to, to, to what people like Lindsay and what Matt Walsh and what other left-wing people have admitted themselves. You can find comments going back, not months, years ago. And so I, I, I'm going to make a, a prediction that I, I think that, that what happened in Tennessee is unfortunately not going to be the end of this story. I think in some ways it's actually going to be the beginning of something, not the end of it. Yeah. Well, I think I want to use the last part here to talk about like what what can you actually practically do about this. Um, so, look, the, the first thing is is dealing with the the practical security mechanism, which is to understand something that 
you know, it, the Democrat solution has always been kind of the same narrative on all this. Ban the guns. If you ban the guns, this won't happen. And they tend to point to other countries and say, see, it doesn't happen over there. Now, many times they get that incorrectly. There was actually a, a pretty good article that was putting out talking about debunking like the seven most popular myths of um, mass shootings in the United States. And it went on to explain that while this does happen in the United States, and while it has happened more recently, it is, it is not a phenomenon exclusive to the United States. Um, it's not a phenomenon exclusive to countries that allow private ownership of firearms. And so they, they've gone through and they, they've debunked some of that. They've also pointed out that, well, again, if this were true, can you please explain why places like California seem to have a bigger problem with this than places that, you know, quite frankly, have four more widespread gun ownership, looser gun laws and, and everything else. And, and, and they're still adjusting for things like population, right? Um, so, so all of that's important. But when we're talking about security of a school, so none of us like the situation that we're in. How do we address it? I don't think you, you effectively address it by taking away the essential civil liberties of people that have done nothing wrong. I think that's a dangerous precedent on a number of levels. Um, I, I, I don't think it actually gets to the underlying issue. And, and by the same token, what you've also done is you've systematically disarmed other people. And now I would say, presumably, you're now responsible if something bad happens to them, if you've taken away their mechanism for defending themselves. Now, some people will come on and they will immediately respond, nobody wants to take your guns, we just want common sense gun control. And I'd love to ask them, what do you mean by that? Well, we want background checks. You already got them. <laughs> right? we, we want background checks. We want this. We want that. Like, I, it, it's amazing to me how th the way that they will market gun controls, they yes. will list off a number of things that are already in place as if they don't exist. Or, you, you honestly have people out there that think anybody can walk into a 7-Eleven and buy yeah. an AR-15. That is not the reality anywhere in the United States. And they believe that their solution is the only solution, even though they cannot guarantee that what they impose will actually solve the problem. They, they can't, they won't do that. First of all, they, they won't make that promise that if we do this, this will be the solution. It'll be fine. And we'll right. be better off. They won't make that promise because yeah. if they did, then they have to come back and say, okay, maybe something else is at play here. The other thing too, that I, I hear this all the time. Like I, I said, once I said, look, I'm not saying that, you know, all the teachers should be armed in America. I've never said that. I've never advocated that. I don't think that's a good right. idea. Now I have said that if a school wanted to establish a policy where you have a teacher that might be former law enforcement, might be former military, um, that, that is you know qualified in a number of levels, and they want to go through additional training to where they, they could carry under certain conditions. Because right off the bat, just doing that and, and, and the population in general knowing that that's a possibility, that affects the threat determination that the bad guy makes before they go to the school. Right, because I, I think it's a fair question to be like, why do the bad guys seem to want to go to places that are gun-free zones? Yeah. Now, is is every mass shooting in a gun-free zone? No. Are most of them? Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're in places that are advertised as gun-free zones. So please stop telling me that this is a sufficient. Imagine if the door, instead of having a gun-free zone sign, then had a, at this school, we protect our children. Yeah. Various students and various not teachers. Students. Not yeah. students. Not students. Yeah. Various faculty yeah. are armed and ready to use lethal force if necessary. Yeah, we have school resource officers. We have school security officers. It's like, you know, th this is a, what we would call in the military, hardened target. Right. Right. So. I posited that idea. Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we, why couldn't we discuss that? It is totally off the table. They yeah. want to, and you know what the response is? The solution to school shootings is not more guns in our schools. I'm like, that is a fascinating statement because what happens every time there's a school shooting? What do you do? Do you call up an army of social workers? A good guy with a gun. No, you call comes. up cops. You call up guys with guns to go in and stop the bad guy with guns. So if you can acknowledge that the solution, once a school shooting has started, is to call people with guns to get it to stop, why can't you acknowledge that the people with guns being there in the first place might prevent it from happening? Yeah. 
Right. I'm sorry. That's a logical conclusion. I'll give another example. This here's how you know they don't really believe what they're saying is that when there was going to be a 20,000 person protest in Richmond over guns, over the gun issue, what did the governor do? He called in law enforcement from all over the Commonwealth of Virginia. There were areas in the in Virginia that were now underprotected because he was so busy pulling in state troopers and local law enforcement from all over the rest of, to come in and provide additional security at the Capitol. Huh? You, you mean you thought more guns were the solution? You thought you thought a quicker response time yeah. would, would be a way you thought you, you thought that having more law enforcement on, on site would be a preventative measure. You thought that maybe somebody that was potentially going to cause trouble would see the additional police presence and, and choose not to. So it made sense when you were protecting you, yeah. but it doesn't make sense when you're protecting children. And then they'll immediately go into, well, the real problem here is that we have to do this in the first place. Oh my gosh, I agree. But there was hundreds of, of millions of guns in the United States 30, 40 years ago when this wasn't happening. And now your only solution is to get rid of that. I'd rather know what happened psychologically, what happened philosophically, yeah. what happened morally yeah. in this country over the last couple of decades to create an environment where people think that yeah. this is an effective and moral outcome for their rage or pain. And if you're not willing to address that issue, if you're just wanting to chuck it, oh, well, they're just, they're, they're mentally unhealthy. Oh, okay, maybe so, but what does that mean? Because they're not mentally unhealthy to this. The, the, this person clearly wasn't mentally unhealthy to the point where they weren't capable of establishing their grievance, writing it down, getting out a map, planning out what their targets were going to be, potentially planning future targets. They, they certainly weren't mentally incompetent. Yeah. But if you're not willing to get to the motivation behind it, if you're not willing to understand how the rhetoric and how we look at reality and, and the moral structure within society, if you're not willing to consider how that factors into this, I got news for you. You can ban all the guns tomorrow. And that person that wants to make other people feel their pain will find simply find a different mechanism in order to do it. And in the meantime, you will have told everybody else that their, their essential civil liberties are completely subject to how somebody else might misuse theirs, yeah. in which case they're no longer essential civil liberties. They're just privileges to be granted or taken away at a moment's notice. So if we really want solutions, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm filibustering here because I know we're, we're low on time, but we've, I, I, we promised this at the beginning of the show. From a security perspective, yes, I think uh, school security officers, I think school resource officers, I think having a program where certain teachers that meet very, very stringent requirements be at, at, least, at least let people you know, know that it's a possibility that the teacher can be armed. Yeah. I think that's important. I think that there needs to be far harsher penalties for people that are, are especially serially committing acts of violence because while, while mass shootings are a little bit different um, with, with respect to the overall considerations for what goes in there and motivations, one thing that we do know is the vast majority of gun violence is actually committed by a relatively small portion of the population. And many of them are repeat offenders. So, so the Democrat solution of letting all of these violent offenders out earlier on, on you know, good behavior is, yeah. is probably not the best approach. So we need, we need to punish people that have actually demonstrated that they are willing to commit acts of violence against innocent people for whatever reason, whether it be greed, whether it be ideological, I, I don't care. If you're hurting another human being, that tells me something about what you're willing to do in order to achieve whatever your desired end state is, and that's dangerous. The other thing that we need to look at just as, and, and here's the part that never comes up because the moment you do it, you're automatically accused of, of being mean or insensitive or not wanting to actually solve the problem. 
in, in all these situations, we're, we're coming to a situation where we're more and more parents. There, there are things that we can do as individuals. I, I don't, I never say this as, to, as, as an accusation toward a parent that if only you had done this, like I don't do what the other side does to me all the time, which is if only we had done this, this child would still be alive. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that as parents, we should be encouraged by the fact that we do have options. We don't have to wait around for politicians to figure it out. Yeah. We do have options with respect to how we raise our kids, how we educate our kids, how we prepare our kids, how we prepare ourselves, how we try to fight back about what's going on. And, and, and I'm not even talking about school security in this point. I, I think each one of these parents had, had you know, it, it, all the evidence probably suggested to them that they, their kids were in a perfectly safe environment. Why not? Yeah. Right. They're not responsible for what happened to their kids. Right. But by the same token, we do have to start taking a harder look on the values that we're actually teaching to our children. And quite frankly, there, there's been a lot of time here where we've kind of told ourselves that as long as that's happening over there, that's their problem. I'm going to do my thing over here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sorry, but if, if you're if you're allowing certain things which are wrong and inaccurate to persist within society, it is only a matter of time before it hits you in one way or another. There's no getting around that. And, and, I, and, I, and I don't mean any part of that to, to, to be harsh. It, it isn't meant to be harsh. It's just meant to be something that we have to recognize exists. And, and when you live in a society which values mothers and fathers actually standing up and defending their children and raising their children correctly, when you value, when, when you actually encourage a society which comes along other people which are hurting and helps them, not because some government program taxed you and redistributed it, but because you see those other peoples within your society as valuable human beings that you want to assist one, because it's the right thing to do, and two, because you always know that that could have been you. There but by the grace of God go I. Yeah. When, when, you, when you have that sort of society that fosters that kind of community, even when there's difficulties, we're much able and more equipped to overcome it. And then finally, the other thing that we are going to have to get across is that when you create a society, when you have determined that if you don't do what I want, I will use the government mechanism as a bludgeon and a force to compel you to do what I want, to celebrate what I believe, and if you don't, there will be consequences. And if the government doesn't move fast enough, I'll move myself. You are creating a society where violence will be the answer. Yeah. Because it's the only one you've allowed. Step one is we peacefully come together and we, we try to establish, okay, you have rights, I have rights. But we're living in proximity to one another. So, so what, are way, what are ways that we might be able to accommodate one another? What are ways that we might be able to compromise in those spaces where we have to work together or interact? And, and if that doesn't work, we might even come to the conclusion that, hey, look, we shouldn't interact. You should be free to live your life. I should be free to live mine. Right? So the first step has always been like, insofar as we're going to interact with one another, let's find the way to do it that is mutually respectful of each other's rights and desires. And insofar as we, we can't meet a, a compromise, the next step is we leave each other alone. We don't compel the other one to do what we want. But if you're going to have a society where there is no doing that because you're the oppressor and I'm the oppressed, if you're going to have a society where there is no way where you can be free to live your lives and live your values, so long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of the others, then there is no answer outside of violence. I don't want to live in that sort of society. But that is where we're heading. Just to wrap out here, I, Nick, I obviously agree with everything that you said, but I think as conservatives, we are very prone to look for very quick solutions. And what can be done today, and I agree with everything you said regarding school security and what could be done tomorrow in the next 12 months. But I think we have to understand that what 
is happening now is a culmination of what's been pushed for 30, 40 years. And that in a previous episode, maybe, maybe two episodes ago, we looked at an academic journal from 95, 94, 94 that contained language that is now being used as standard language today. And in, in public, not in academic circles. Yeah. It, right. In That's public. That's a good point. Yeah. And so I think we need to be committed to fighting a 30, 40, 50 year battle and asking ourselves, what do we do today? And I think Nick is correct that in the education is the number one issue we should be concerned about because 30, 40 years ago, the left had been implanting their ideology in elementary schools, in higher education. And we need to be committed to that battle. It's not going to be won in a year or two years or three years. It's not going to be won by the next presidential election. It's going to be a multi-decade process. Oh, the the, the biggest thing, and I, I'll, I'll end with this, but like the, the biggest thing that I think conservatives hopefully have learned over the past couple presidential election cycles is um, you electing your guy to the White House does not suddenly fix all of this country's yeah. problems or, or all of society's problems. Well, we have to understand, too, that the problem may not get fixed in a year. It may not be fixed in two years. Yeah, that That's true. And and we've talked about this before in this podcast, and, and we will at some point when we have the opportunity do a deeper dive into how did we get to this point, the, the yeah. intellectual roots of of cultural Marxism basically and how we got to this point because it's a fascinating story that that it really explains the heart of why we're at this point right mm -hmm. and and between that and the whole postmodernist stuff and then really the crisis of meaning too yeah, yeah. right like like this person was clear for, for example the the Nashville shooting this person was clearly suicidal Mm -hmm. And wanted to to take other people with them, right? And and wanted to inflict pain on other people as as they themselves left this world. And in a healthy society, stuff like that does not happen. And instead, we're seeing it more and more and more. And and as Nick pointed out, the left just wants to either blame right wing rhetoric or they want to blame guns for the problem. And neither of those are really what's 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 causing this. And so, no, I think that 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 what happened yesterday in Tennessee is even more motivation for us to go deeper down this yes. this this trail of how did we get to this point because i think conservatives are starting to realize that things are really starting to fall apart at the seams here i like mm -hmm. like like the the common it, it threads was accelerated that, by covid it was gradually at first and then suddenly all at once yeah. right and and the, the the common threads that hold society together are starting to fray and and we're starting to see the fabric unravel as a result yes. and like i said we're we're going to have some opportunities in the but future should, to, should we be depressed by that should we be oh, discouraged I am. like what should our reaction to that be oh i'm certainly i stuff like this and and other stuff Absolutely. that's going on i, I i'm i'm very depressed i am and and we've talked about this before. Nick is usually the more positive outlook. And so we have a great dynamic. The two of us have been friends for a long time, in part because we've bonded over the fact that I usually come from things from a very pessimistic standpoint, right. and he comes from things from a more optimistic standpoint. And personally, I mean, I'm really blackpilled right now about just the direction of our country, of society, of right. culture, of plenty of things, our politics. So, but... I'm not going to say that that my positions, my takes on things are are you know inherently true and and, and yeah. inevitable, right? So, 
part of the reason that we need to have this broader discussion is is for us to all come to the table and for the audience as well to to you know really share their thoughts on on where things are going and in like I said, hopefully we'll go down this journey to to discover something and maybe the results won't be as pessimistic as I think that they are. But right now, man, I, I'm telling you it, you know, actually I'll end today's episode with a couple of um, Facebook messages that I sent to some friends privately six days ago. And I think that I, I, I think it's, it's the, the timing was just kind of incredible. I told some friends, I said, I have this terrible feeling the bottom, I said this on March 21st, I said, I have this terrible feeling the bottom is beginning to fall out of society. We're close to violence. People are in the process of self-sorting. We're already well on our way to getting there. That's why I think we're close to violence. We absolutely hate each other at this point. We're sitting on a volcano. The storm is on the horizon. If you search deeply within yourself, you know that it's true. The cultural, political, and economic threads that have held society together for so long have frayed so much that it won't take a lot for the entire fabric to unravel. We are close. And um, like I said, you know, less than a week later, this happens. And so I and I don't think it's going to end here. I, I think that, that we're seeing more and more stuff like this is going to keep popping up. And that we've got to find a way to reverse this before before things really start getting extremely ugly. So we'll see. I, I think to, to that point when you're asking, you know, what do you do about it? I, I've had people ask me before when, because obviously it was, I mean, the last, the last election cycle in Virginia, as far as like our governor and whatnot, that all, but people would ask me from a political perspective, you know, why do you keep fighting this where we're, you know, we're losing ground and it feels like, um, you know, things aren't going in our favor. And the answer I always give, and I, and I, and, and it's a Christian mindset. It's like my, my job is to be obedient. Mm -hmm. My job is to be obedient to my purpose. Yeah. Um, to God's purpose for me. And, and, and so, and, and I, and I try to do that and, and it's not that it's not that I always uh, get it right. And it's not that I don't, I, I don't, uh, you know, stray from that at times or, or, you know, that, that I couldn't do it better, but the idea of being so frustrated or depressed about something and just giving up, I'm, I, I'm not allowed to seriously consider that if that makes sense. Now, now does that mean that there aren't times where I, I feel that way? Sure. But I'm not allowed to seriously consider it. And, and so much of, of what I've experienced, whether it was going through training in the military and difficult schools or whether it was combat or whether it was raising kids or whether it was, you know, the legislature, whatever it was, every once in a while I have to remind myself that like, you don't, you don't get to quit. You just don't, you, you, and, and when you do that and when you accept the fact that, no, this is, this is the mission, um, you know, <laughs> it goes back to Esther, right? Who knows if you were, you were born for such a time as this, but it is what it is. Um, so if you, the, the way I put it one way is, you know, everybody wants to live in the time of Solomon, right? Everyone wants to live in a time where it's peaceful and it's, it's wealthy and we're building the temple and it's, it, and nobody wants to live in the four seventies. Well, it, it, it's, what, what it really, what it really comes down to is everybody wants to live in the time where it's, it's again, it's peaceful, it's secure, it's, it's wealthy. It's all those things. And, and, and to some degree we are some degree we are when you look at the course of human history, I don't, I don't want to be so pessimistic or so kind of obtuse as to not recognize that with everything going on right now, when you compare it with other times, it's still just significantly better, but, um, good, good times are made. Yeah. 
they, they don't they don't just come about. Good good times are made when people make a decision to stand up and fight for the things that actually have value in their lives. And and as long as we can commit to doing that, I will say this: even if you don't see it, the fight's worth it. You know, there's a um, th- th- there's a quote from J.R. Tolkien that that really gets to that. I, it's one of my favorite quotes that he's ever written. Um, he wrote it in Lord of the Rings, and and it's a dialogue between Frodo and Gandalf, and Frodo's complaining about how he has this responsibility now to to take the ring to Mordor. Right? He doesn't want to do it, and he says, "I wish it need not have happened in my time," said Frodo. "So do I," said Gandalf, "and so do all who live to see such times. But it is not for them to decide." All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And I think that really gets to Nick's point that like, you know, we, we, we all kind of wish that we lived our entire lives in, in, in an era of, you know, peace and prosperity. And for many ways we have, right. But, but every era has its own problems and some eras have different problems, right? We, we weren't around during the world wars, right? They had completely different problems than we yeah. do today. And we don't really get to pick and choose, what era of history we live in and what sort of problems we have to deal with, we get to pick and choose how we tackle those problems and what we're going to do about them. And we've chosen to tackle those problems by in part doing this show and yep. trying to provide some value to people that, that listen to us and, and hopefully they'll learn something from it. And there's other stuff that you can do as well. And part of the, what, part of what we do on the show is to try to provide some advice to people on, on what they can do with the circumstances that they're in with the, you know, what, what, what to use this phrase, you know, to decide what to do with the time that is given to us. So, um, like I said, we've got some interesting ideas coming up in, in some future episodes that we'll get to that kind yeah. of wraps up this, this kind of arc that we've gone through for the past couple episodes. And hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to provide something more than just doom and glue. <laughs> no, no. Well, listen, I, I thank you for everyone that's waited along for all 76 minutes of this or so. I appreciate you, you sticking with us. It's, it's a, you know, it's a difficult topic and it's not one that can be effectively addressed, I think, in, in um, you know, a 60 second little soundbite. So that's why we spent so much time for it. Please uh, let us know what you thought. Um, let us know what your thoughts of about uh, addressing this issue and kind of the larger philosophical and fundamental ones that the country's facing. We appreciate you sticking with us and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.